0: This morning, as I just mentioned, we're going to be looking at another picture of Jesus, um, a time when Jesus uh, uses those same words that he used uh, last week, those words of comfort to his disciples. Uh, Jesus revealed himself on the sea in John 6 to his disciples in this moment of desperate fear and danger. And, And here in the passage we're going to look at this morning, he appears to the Apostle John in a moment of lonely desperation, And he brings that same word of comfort to him. My prayer this morning is that whatever it is you're going through, that this passage would, on the one hand, convict you if you're here this morning and you feel like you don't really need Jesus all that much. On the other hand, that it would convince you that Jesus really is there for you more than you could possibly imagine. So let's look together at Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And I invite you to please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Not out of respect for the reader, but for the speaker who is God. This is Revelation 1 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last This sends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. We pray that you would show us Christ and His mercy and grace in our time of need in this passage. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform us by that grace into people who are more and more like Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, My working assumption on any given Sunday morning uh, is that you're coming to worship uh, the same way I'm coming to worship. Uh, Frazzled by a week of chasing a deadline or chasing a dollar or chasing a kid that's taken off across the grocery store. Uh, Any number of things that are on your mind and weighing you down as you come through these doors. Uh, You're probably coming to worship happy about some things, discouraged about other things, Probably sensing a bit of guilt and shame for ways that you didn't get it right this week. Probably wondering if you've struck the right balance between being a husband, father, mother, son, employee, student, all of the things, right, that you're responsible for during the week. Uh, Wrestling with some sins you can't shake, burdened by the sins of others that are uh, causing conflict and hurt to you. Uh, Some things are looking up, some things are looking down. And that is just real life as a believer in Jesus. That's real life, and we're all in it together. And real life is hard for sinners who desperately need Jesus. It's hard for sufferers who desperately need his grace. So don't be afraid to admit it to each other, to yourself, that you desperately need Jesus. Yes, even you need Jesus today, right now. So I want to look at this passage in Revelation 1, to 9-20, because I think it's an under-traveled path to Jesus. It's an under-traveled path to Jesus, maybe because Revelation scares us a little bit, but I think there is so much encouragement to be had in this picture of Jesus that we find in the opening chapter of Revelation. We get a strong dose of who Jesus really is for people who desperately need him. This is Jesus in all of his glory for sinners like us who desperately need his grace, I want us to study Jesus together for a few moments. Just study him. And if you're a student, don't worry. I don't mean the kind of study where you're going to have a quiz or an exam after the sermon, but I want us to study him, contemplate him. Uh, The English Puritan John Flavel said that uh, when we study other things, the more time we spend studying this or that, even good things, we can neglect studying the most important thing. He said that when you lose sight of the main thing, uh, you're playing at a low game when you could soar. He says, The study of Jesus Christ is the most noble subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. Those that rack and torture their brains upon other studies, like children, weary themselves at a low game. The eagle plays at the sun itself. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see Jesus like the brilliant sun burning overhead. See him in all of his glory for us, and I think this passage will really help us to do that. Let's look at Revelation 1, 9 to 20 now, and I want us to look uh, at just three things in this passage, just a simple outline to guide us. I want us to see first where Jesus is, where Jesus is, second who Jesus is, and finally what Jesus says, where he is who he is, and what he says. So first, where is Jesus? Let's look at where Jesus is. We're in the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is a book that's all about the victory of Jesus. It's meant to encourage believers living in the early church and living in our day today who suffer tribulation, uh, the push of the world against us in persecution, and the pull of the world upon us in temptation. It's meant to encourage us with the work of the risen King Jesus throughout this age all the way to the very last day when he returns to make all things new. It's a book about suffering and endurance and hopeful expectation of the coming King who even now is sitting on his throne reigning over all things. Our victorious King who's coming back for us. Our loving King who cares for us. So, this vision of Christ in Revelation is connected to that reality. And it's full of symbolism that can sound strange. Uh, we've said it already this morning, but uh, it, it maybe is a little daunting to look at Revelation together because we get a little scared by the book of Revelation sometimes. Mariana kind of gave me a look when I said my first sermon as a pastor here was going to be Revelation 1 9 to 20, so I made it my second sermon. And she still gave me a look. But I really want you to see the picture of Jesus here. The symbolism is weird, it's strange to our modern uh, understanding and and familiarity, but it is so crucial to see how Jesus is presented here. So let's look at where Jesus is and how this speaks to us today. To get at this, we have to think about where John is when he receives this vision. We're dropping into these verses in Revelation 1 where John tells us about uh, where he is when he received this vision that plays out over the rest of the book. He says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, John is alone on Patmos. He's far removed from the church. Uh, maybe he was exiled. That's what many people think. Other th- others think maybe he fled persecution and now finds himself alone on Patmos. Uh, This puts a little distance, right, between John and maybe our experience. None of us have been exiled to an island. Uh, Maybe we haven't fled persecution into the wilderness, uh, unlike other brothers and sisters in the Church of Jesus Christ around the world. But I think that we can still relate to John's sense of aloneness. We can relate to it on many levels. Just to think of one example, uh, in recent years, churches across our country wrestled with the disruptions that the pandemic brought. I remember in California, uh, we were ejected from our worship space, meeting in a public school, understandable. Uh, And in those early weeks, uh, we were kind of digital nomads and could not gather together until finally we got together in a parking lot for worship. I think here at Heritage, there was a time when worship moved outdoors onto the lawn. But I remember those early weeks of confusion and concern, not being able to gather, not being able to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Being removed from a minister of the gospel, declaring that your sins are forgiven, serving the supper, preaching the word, distant from everything that we love about being a part of the family of Christ, it was isolating and it felt very alone. So I think maybe we can get that a little bit more than we could in the past. At some point in your Christian experience, no matter what angle it comes from, you will know what it's like to be alone. And that's where John is. He's utterly and completely alone. At least that's what he thinks. But he's not truly alone. And you're never truly alone. Look at what verse 12 says and where Jesus is. John hears this voice. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these lampstands, John is going to see Jesus. That's where Jesus is. But what in the world does that mean? He's in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Well, Jesus explains to John what that means in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So don't miss this. Even in the symbolism that takes a minute to get, this is a crucial vision of Jesus. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? He is in the midst of the seven lampstands, which means he is in the midst of the seven churches, which is a way in the book of Revelation of saying he is in the midst of all the church in its fullness and its completeness. Seven being this idea of the whole number of a thing. Jesus is with his church. He is with all of his church throughout all times and all places. Jesus is with his church. So there may be times, friends, in your life when you feel absolutely alone, absolutely isolated from the church. Maybe it's because you think you have to be perfect every time you come through those doors. And you look around and you feel like a fraud. You feel like no one really knows you because you've never let your guard down to show who you really are. Maybe it's because suffering has come to your family and you are physically removed from worship. And you cannot be with your brothers and sisters in Christ Uh, There are a number of ways that you could feel alone, even if you were right here in this room. But Jesus is with his church. The Son of Man, the King of Kings, our Jesus. He is always here with his people, with you, no matter where you are. He is with his church. He is never absent. He is always present. That's where Jesus is. Jesus is with his church. The second truth we see about Jesus, we've seen he's with his church, whether they're gathered or scattered. He's walking amid the lampstands, yet here he is with poor John, alone on Patmos. That's where he is. He's he's with you. But secondly, who is Jesus? Verses 13 and 16. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So we could go into all of the nitty-gritty about the symbolism here. But I think we can sum it up. Here, John, in this vision, in this dreamlike symbol of Jesus, he sees a pure, majestic, glorious person. He sees Christ as our prophet, the sword that comes out of his mouth, the Word of God declared to his people. We see Christ as the priest of his people, the long robe and sash drawing back to the Old Testament and the vestments the priest wore. We see Christ as king, He is called the Son of Man, and if you recall from Daniel 7, which we heard read, all dominion is given to the Son of Man. He reigns above all things. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We see he has white hair corresponding to the Ancient of Days. We didn't read all of Daniel 7, but you see the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, and he is portrayed in the same way we're seeing Jesus here. The roar of his voice. The prophets speak of the word of God as the roar of many waters. This rushing, roaring, powerful stream. All that to say, the person that John sees here in all of his glory and all of his splendor is Jesus, the Son of God. God the Son, Christ, resurrected and reigning in glory. So what does John do seeing this incredible vision of Jesus? He does what I think we would all do. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. A vision of the glory of Christ should always lead to that reaction, whether it's in a vision like John received or for us today, whenever we find ourselves studying God's word and we just get bowled over by who Jesus is in his glory as we study him in scripture, it should instill this reverent fear in us, this recognition of who he is and who we are. And in fact, it might put the fear of judgment in us as we see Jesus revealed in Scripture, if we've spent more time studying our sin than the Savior. It might feel like we're going to be standing before the divine judge and get the book thrown at us. And if that were the case, we would deserve it. We deserve any judgment we get. I think I need to ask you this morning, have you recognized that? Have you recognized your sin in light of the glory of who Jesus is? in the light of who God is and His majesty and glory portrayed in this image of Christ? Have you said like Isaiah, who saw the vision of the heavenly temple and the angels surrounding the throne crying out, Holy, 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 have you said like Isaiah, I am done for? You see, if you don't come to that realization, if you haven't acknowledged that reality about yourself, that you are a sinner before a holy God, Seeing Jesus in his word is the most terrifying thing you could possibly see. It's the most terrifying reality of all. In Jesus, we see the law of God practiced perfectly. Love of God and love of others. Jesus did it perfectly. If you're not falling at Jesus' feet, then his mercy to those who need it condemns your self-centeredness. If you're not uh, devoted to the Father, then his devotion even unto death on the cross condemns your rebellion Against God. His refusal to give into temptation bears your sinful wandering before the eye of the all-seeing God. This life that Jesus lived is only offered to those who fall at his feet, those who recognize who they are and who the holy God they stand before is. You can only receive his obedient life and his sacrificial death in your place if you come to that point and you fall at his feet as though dead. In light of who we are and who Jesus is, I'm thankful that this passage doesn't end with John laying like a dead man at Jesus' feet. Because it goes on with hope. It goes on where Jesus, uh, John tells us that he laid, Jesus laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, fear not. That's the good news. when we've come to the end of ourselves, when we've recognized who we are before a holy God, when we realize there is no hope for us and we lay ourselves flat before Jesus, he doesn't come and step on us. He puts his hand upon us and says, fear not. Fear not, don't be afraid. I wonder if John remembered being on the boat in that storm. So many years ago when the waves were threatening to crush the vessel and tear the boat apart and send them to the deep and Jesus came walking on the waves and said, It's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus had gone away, and he had become, as we said last week, the absent one in the story, but he was not absent. He appears in that chaos, and he says those words, It is I. Do not be afraid. I'm glad these moments are written into the Bible, because we need to hear those words too. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning, uh, you find yourself totally brought to the end of yourself. You're faced with the holiness and the glory of Christ and you recognize your weakness and your sin, you need to hear those words. Fear not. If you feel totally lost and confused about what God is doing, you think God is at work, but you can't make any sense out of anything, you need to hear those words. Fear not. If you feel alone and isolated because you think everyone else has it all put together and you're the only one that's struggling, and you're the only one who can't figure out how to make it right, you need to hear those words. Fear not. Jesus lays his hand upon us. He's the exalted king of glory, but he's a king who stops and he sees us and he stoops and he puts his hand upon sinners and he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. So don't be afraid to run to him. Run to him by faith. Receive from him the redemption and the comfort and the love that you desperately need in those words. Fear not. We've seen where Jesus is, and we've seen who Jesus is, and we've started to hear what he says, but I want to focus now on what Jesus says, because he goes on to say more. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades when believers who have placed their faith in the Lord uh, shrink back in fear from his glory, they shrink back in fear, uh, sinners that we are openly acknowledging that we are horribly unqualified uh, in ourselves to stand before Christ, Uh, what makes us shrink back in moments like that, what makes us run away from him is the voice of the law that bound us in condemnation. The law is holy and righteous and good in the hand of Christ, extended to Christians as the way of the good life. But in the hand of self-righteousness, when we try to live by it, it will always trounce you. The law will come and we hear the soul that sins will die. And we see our holy Savior presented to us in in his word. And we run because all we're hearing is that word and not the word of grace in the gospel. Our accuser, the devil, tells us we are unworthy, that we're too dirty for his glorious king to put his hand upon us. But the lawgiver, and this is an amazing truth, that lawgiver, Jesus Christ, is the law keeper. He's the one who pays the penalty for all of the times that we blow it. We cling to Jesus by faith in his obedience on our behalf. Desperate, weak arms wrapped around him. We are weak, but strong hands wrapped around him because of our faith. Uh, Jesus took the sting of death away. The sting of death says Paul is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who holds the keys of death and Hades. In the Gospel, He puts His strong hand upon us in our weakness, in our desperation, in our guilt, in our shame. He puts His hand upon us. He is for you, Christian. He is for you. He puts one hand upon us and with the other hand he holds up the keys of victory. He gives them a little rattle and he says, what are you afraid of? Fear not. I have died and now I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of everything that threatened you. I hold the keys of everything that you are afraid of. I hold the keys of condemnation And eternal death and judgment, that is taken away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He has his hand upon you in the gospel, and he says, what are you afraid of? I have taken it on myself to take the eternal pain of death and hell away. So now we can sing, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Because of the good news of the gospel. He holds those keys, and that freedom is yours. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And because I live, whatever you're going through, whatever you've done, I am with you. That's where Jesus is. He is with his church, He is with you. I am for you. I am your prophet, your priest, and your king, showing you the way of salvation, paying the penalty for your sin praying before the Father's throne for you, subduing your unruly heart and ruling over you with grace, defending you from all your enemies. I am your prophet, priest, and king. That is who Jesus is. And I say that I am for you and you need not be afraid. He puts his powerful, loving hand upon you and says, fear not. I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of victory. There is nothing for you to be afraid of. Let's pray together. Father, and we just come to you right now knowing that we don't always feel that hand upon us or hear the rattle of those keys. Father, we ask that you would make the gospel so clear and present to us when we see how we don't measure up, when we see how we've messed up and blown it. Father, help us to run to Jesus. We ask that we would remember that he is for us declaring victory over sin and suffering, death and Satan, forever leading us on in victory as the day of his return approaches. We ask, Lord, that you would come quickly. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.